Would you please turn with me to Mark 8, 27? Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he said to his, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him, charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed." when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, this morning I hope you'll leave your Bibles open to this incredible passage. And some of you who have been here in recent weeks have already observed we reread some of it because it's part of the same story. Really, we should read the whole of the book of Mark if we really wanted to get the context right. But this morning, we journey to the center of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Not only the middle of the book, but the the hinge point of the entire message of the Gospel of Mark. I have to tell you, I love this passage. I think about this passage all the time. I've spoken on this passage probably more times than any other section of Scripture. Uh, This morning, um, my daughter asked me as we were getting into the car to head over here, uh, Dad, did you get a new shirt? Like, no, but I broke it out for today because I felt like I needed to dress up to preach this passage. Now, some of you are looking up here and you're thinking, that's dressing up. This is as good as it gets. Uh, But this morning, I love this passage so much. I feel like it it deserves to have just like maybe a little bit better button up for it because it's such a powerful center. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready to lean in and pay attention to what we find at the center of this gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, (laughs) you're so good. You've given us you. And you've not left us to wonder who you are, to simply make observations about what our eyes have seen. But you've given us your word. Your word by which we are to understand what our eyes have seen. And what the the apostles saw, and what they heard, and what they've touched, Lord, they've borne witness to for us in your word. Thank you, God, that you've preserved this word to this day by your spirit, that it would come to our ears. Pray that we would be ready to receive it. That we would receive it not only for the transformation of our mind, but by faith for the transformation of our lives, for the increase of our faith for the correction of our idolatry, that we would worship you rightly. 
in our hearts, in our households, and in the networks to which you have sent us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. This morning, uh, really the desire that I have for everyone here, including myself, is I want us to know Jesus, but that sentence not enough, is it? You see, we need to know Jesus according to what he has actually revealed about himself. Not that we would know Jesus according to our own imaginings, according to our own life's demands or cultural demands or upbringings, but that we would know the Jesus according to his own self-revelation. Not what we assume him to be or presume him to be or demand that he be. Perhaps this morning, and I would ask you to think about this, can you remember the first time you heard the gospel? Can, can you remember the first time you heard something about Jesus? I asked the, the kids in my community group that this past week, and a couple of them had some answers, and a couple, you could tell, they're like, I, I can't really remember that well. I would ask you this morning, do you remember where you were the first time you, you really made a, a, a sort of a mental note of the name of Jesus? What were the circumstances of your life when you first began to follow after him with any sort of genuine faith or sincerity? We're going to come back to the word genuine faith later on in our time together. But perhaps the time that you first really came to follow after the Christ was in the midst of hard times. This is often the case. That God meets us in a desperate moment in the midst of hard times. But for others, and I think this was probably the case for a lot of the kids who were in my community group this past week, perhaps you've just been around Jesus and the church your whole life. So it's like asking when did the first time you ever heard your name? You can't really remember it, right? It's just sort of always a name that's been there. Years ago when I preached on this, I asked the question, it's like Jesus is like Aunt Gertrude, you know? She's like, and right now I'm like, oh no, is there someone named Aunt Gertrude here this morning? Well, Aunt Gertrude's sort of the lady who's just always there at every family gathering. Nobody really knows her. Nobody's really had a conversation with her. Everybody knows roughly how she's related, but nobody really knows why she's always at every family function. Perhaps Jesus is just sort of always there, but not really given much attention to. What I want to do is I just want to take a second and consider Peter. Peter is, is a very important, not the most important, but a very important character in our passage this morning. I want to ask Peter, what is the first time you heard the name Jesus? What was it like? What was your life like when you first began to follow after him? And Peter's answer would be, well, it's actually recorded for us at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. I told my buddy Mark about it. He recorded that first meeting in Mark chapter 1, verse 17. And, and there you would find that I was a fisherman at the time. And it wasn't a particularly hard time. It was just another day fishing. But on that day, Peter and his brother Andrew, they were casting nets into the sea. They were simple fishermen. That's what they were. That's what they are. And that's what they were always going to be. Pretty simple. 
And then this rabbi comes along. Maybe they'd heard of him because of John the Baptist and some of the goings on there. Maybe they hadn't heard of him, but they would hear much about him soon. That rabbi was Jesus. And, and Jesus began to shape their perspective of both who he was and who they were in light of him. You see, they used to think that they were fishermen. And then Jesus begins to teach them that he is going to make them into something else that is fishers of men. One time, Jesus even stood up in the middle of a boat where Peter was, in the middle of a storm that's Peter and the other fishermen's greatest fear on that Sea of Galilee. And Jesus exclaimed the phrase, Peace, be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. As we've seen throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is constantly moving people like Peter along from one degree of understanding of who he is to another degree of his own self-revelation. And in the midst of Jesus revealing himself to these people, he's calling them to a faith, an active trust in who he actually is. And this is where we are in our passage today. We've learned a lot about Jesus. We've been challenged in many ways as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. But here in our passage, the Gospel of Mark turns on a dime. Literally, I think it's in one verse it turns, certainly in this passage. It moves from a fast-paced, action-packed, healing and moving one side of the sea, then on the other side of the sea, and then in the countryside of 4,000 people there, 5,000 people, crowds pressing in all over, moves from that sort of fast-paced action to teaching. And Jesus begins to teach what he will do, and then he begins to show how he will do it, and then he does it and there are no crowds around anymore. The Gospel of Mark takes a major turn here at the center. This morning's passage is a powerful moment of Jesus' shaping Peter's and yours and my understanding of who is the Christ. Now, that brings us to where we are in our passage. You'll notice that we did reread verses 27 through 30. We reread that because Peter's confession there is important. Jesus has just confessed the Christ. And it's a moment of bold confession. Who do the crowds say that I am? Blah, Elijah, blah, John the Baptist, maybe one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? Peter stands up. You are the Christ. He was right. He was beautifully and powerfully, faith-filled, right. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is pleased. Jesus is thankful for Peter's confession because God himself, the Father, has revealed this to Peter, has granted him the faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Don't take anything away from Peter's bold confession that he, having read the prophets, knowing who the anointed one is who's coming, he's willing to stand up and confess, I'm standing in front of the Messiah today. It's bold. And then Jesus continues. And he continues to challenge Peter's faith. Look at verse 31 with me. So here, Peter's made this bold confession. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. 
be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now you sit in that room, all right? Peter has just made this bold confession and, and you're ready. Tell us, Messiah, what's your strategy? Now that you're not only the Messiah, but you have a people confessing you're the anointed one, tell us your strategy, strategy to execute the scheme of the role to which you have been ordained. Tell us. And Jesus opens up his grand strategy. He says, well, first of all, it's going to look like suffering. And then rejection. And then death. I'm not even sure if they heard the fourth word, right? Resurrection, what in, in the world that would mean. And Peter says, no, no, that is not the Messiah I was talking about. That is not the confession that I just made. I'm talking about an anointed king who rescues people, not a dead king. Look at the passage, verse 31 and 32. I, I love this. When you're reading the Bible, one of the things to watch for is sentences and words that don't need to be there. All right? Verse 31 is fine. He communicated well. And it could just go right to, and Peter took him aside. But it doesn't. It adds this little phrase, right? And he said this plainly. Plain communication. Straightforward. He wasn't talking in metaphors or parables anymore. He's talking about reality of what Peter and the apostles, or the disciples, are going to see with their own eyes. He said this plainly, verse 32. And Peter took him aside. Jesus, we just, we'll be right back. And, and he began to rebuke him. Can you see this? You see, Peter's confession was incomplete. And so in his incomplete confession, he knew the name, but he didn't understand the role. Peter walks over to the one that he just confessed to be the anointed king, and he says, hey, come here, king, 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 come here. First advisor here, I'm going to tell you a couple of things. And he rebukes Jesus, the king. Peter's skewed, preconceived image of Jesus is affecting the way that he follows Jesus. Can you pause there and make sure that we all heard that? Our skewed, preconceived image of who Jesus is will affect not just our doctrinal exam, our understanding of who Jesus actually is, according to his own self-revelation, will affect the way that we follow him. Inevitably, what's going to happen is we won't follow him. We're going to pull him aside and correct him. We'll say things like this, and it happens all the time. I hear these words all the time. That's not the kind of Jesus that I follow. That's all Peter's saying. That's not the kind of Messiah that I follow, Jesus. And Jesus stops Peter dead in his tracks. Look at verse 33 with me. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, in view of the people that Peter would ultimately really set a bit of the step for, he turns, rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. 
Your view of me, he's saying, is shaped by worldly things. See, Jesus threatened to rob Peter of Peter's little Messiah. And because Peter has a view of this little Messiah, and Jesus isn't playing along, Peter begins to rebel and rebuke. And Jesus doesn't play along. Peter literally becomes an enemy of the cross. That's a, it's a phrase, it's a technical phrase used in the scriptures to describe those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, those who are not among the redeemed. He literally becomes an enemy of the cross. I'm fine with Messiah, I'm not okay with cross. And as an enemy of Christ and his cross, he becomes an antichrist. I think that's what Jesus is describing here. Peter, you are a Adopting the mind of the Antichrist. Because there is no Christ without suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. To adopt any other position is to be an enemy of the cross, an Antichrist. But here's the thing about ignorance. Peter turned what he knew about Jesus by, uh, into an idol. And then he fashioned the idol and he filled out the idol by clinging to his own ignorance rather than growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus had revealed himself to Peter to the point that Peter was ready to confess, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus reveals more of who he is and Peter's like, no, I like my ignorant view more than before you informed me. And so I'm going to hold on to what I had and that remains an idol, rather than moving where Jesus would take him to follow after the true Christ. Essentially what Peter's saying is, is, Peter, you need to be like my little Christ idol. I rebuke you, Christ. You need to be like the image that is in my mind. That's huge. And here's why. Ignorance of God is necessary. <laughs> a full and complete view of God is impossible. Jesus is the image of the invisible God of all of creation, infinite, eternal God. Go know him. You've got 10 minutes. No. I don't care if you spend your lifetime knowing God. You will always be ignorant of God. And so that you can see the problem here, right? If we're simultaneously ignorant of the eternality and, and, and infinite nature of our God, who is all-wise, all-perfect, we have a problem if we're called to know him and to follow him. But here's the thing. God does not expect us to know everything about him. But he does expect us to believe and to confess and walk in light of what he has revealed. We are by nature ignorant of the invisible God. But then God takes on flesh, walks among us, doesn't just let us see him, but he speaks words and he reveals himself to us. And our business is this, not to say that we know everything there is to know about God but to say that whatever he has revealed, we will believe. 
And we will walk in light of it. And Lord, we seek you to know you. And we know that those who seek you will be found by you. That if we know the Christ, we know the invisible God. And when we know more about Jesus, inevitably this this casting off of ignorance and growth in knowledge challenges our sort of ongoing idolatry. So we can either be transformed by the renewing of our minds, transformed as we are constantly confronted with the God who is there, or we can be hardened by sin and its deceitfulness. We can protect our little Christ idols, the the, the idol of a misshapen Christ. I hope that this stops us in our tracks and causes us to ask some serious question. You see, there is a Jesus who actually is. Do you hear that? Like there's an actual Jesus who is himself the God-man. God made flesh, the fullness of the image of the invisible God. Everything that is God is the Christ. We can know him. We can see him. And there is not only who Jesus is, there is definitionally what Jesus has done. We can know him. And we can know what he's done. And then there's the idolatry of our preconceived notions about who Jesus is, and we refuse quite often to allow ourselves to be shaped by Jesus' own revelation about himself. Instead, we cling on to old ignorance rather than allowing Jesus to speak his words that we would know the Jesus who actually is so that we no longer say, oh, I don't follow a Jesus like that. Our longing is, I follow the Jesus who is, whoever he may be. According to my understanding of him today, I pursue him knowing that he won't leave me here. He will bring me to his word. He will work by his presence, his promised presence in the midst of his people and his church. And we must ask ourselves, do we have a misshapen view of Jesus that has not allowed the scripture to speak when he has spoken plainly? Which leads us to the question, who is the Christ? Who is the Christ according to his own revelation? Who is the Christ according to the scriptures? You see, you don't just need the Christ of the first half of the gospel of Mark. And I think that's part of what's happening is is Peter is clinging to what he's seen of the Christ thus far. And what he's seen is amazing and worthy of confession. You are the Christ. But we don't need just the Jesus of the first half of Mark. We tend to cling to that Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. A Jesus of help and compassion in a time of need. Let me ask you this. Is that Jesus? Yeah. I mean, we write whole songs about it. Jesus is a help and compassion in a time of need. And we're people in need of education. We're people in in need of a good teacher and more knowledge. And Jesus brings good teaching and more knowledge. And we write books about what Jesus has said. He's a healer. 
and a miracle worker. Friends, we don't need more of the world. We need someone to break into the world and change and heal and fix and redeem. This is who Jesus is, according to the first half of the book of Mark. And it's true. It's the Jesus who is. We need a sort of a, a second chance, some sort of do-over in life, some way to change our circumstance. And it's true. We do. But friends, that is an incomplete view of who Jesus is. We will be left simply saying, thank you, Jesus, for the healing. Thank you for cleansing me of my leprosy. I, I promise I'll make the most of the gift that you've given me. Good luck, sinner. It doesn't work like that. A second chance and a do-over is insufficient for a heart like mine. It's not so much that the image of the first half of the Gospel of Mark is wrong. It's that it's incomplete by Jesus' own revelation. You see, we don't just need help, education, a healer, a second chance. We need a Savior and a Redeemer. And nothing else will do. And this is what Jesus has revealed to us. A Savior and a Redeemer who is here to rescue from sin and from judgment. That's why we get verse 31. I'm going to read it again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. You see, to be gospel-centered is to have that confession at the center of our gospel. He suffered. And so we will no longer suffer the pains of hell. He was rejected so that we would not be rejected by our creator and king. He died so there is no eternal death for those who are in him. And he rose to secure eternal life for all who are in the Christ. This is the center of the gospel. And if this plain gospel is not at the center of our confession of who the Christ is, we run the risk of having no gospel at all. It's not good news to be given a second chance. You're going to need a third chance. God is not the God of second chances. God is not the God who makes our life here more comfortable. God is Redeemer and King. That's good news. He said this plainly. If, if this plain gospel of a suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Messiah isn't at the center of our gospel, our gospel is insufficient. It's, it's incomplete. So incomplete, it, we may be an enemy of the cross. It's insufficient in that it can't meet the real needs of the human soul. It's, it's left in ignorance because it can't redeem. It can do some good things, but that gospel without the suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Christ is insufficient to redeem. And the real tragedy is we'll spend our lives in religious devotion chasing after a man-made Christ idol without that reality at the center of our gospel. You can look like a Christian, you can be part of a church. You can be actively engaged in Christian ministry. But if the suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Messiah isn't truly and actually at the center of all things, at every moment, it's idolatry. 
a man-made Christ idol. I want to give you an example. All right. I, I want to share with you what my Christ idol offered me. All right. I, I was a quiet kid. And friends, that is an understatement. That when I was in classes and the teacher would call on me, I would get in trouble for nothing at all, ever, ever, ever. Except for my mom, would, my, my teachers would write notes home to my parents saying, I can't hear him when he gives answers. And I would get in trouble for not saying the right answer loud enough. All right? I was quiet and I was compliant. At four years old, God offered me acceptance. I remember, I remember when my dad taught on sin and I realized that to be saved meant to be saved from the just punishment of sin. Very young age, I knew very quickly I was a sinner. But my understanding of Jesus had just begun. He, he who began a good work in me at that young age would carry it on to completion. And he is carrying it on to completion. After my parents' divorce at the age of 12, I found out that a quiet kid who is in a very dark place could find acceptance in a local youth group that I, I just started going to shortly after my parents' divorce. I found out that Jesus could be a place where I was accepted. And it's true. Jesus is a place where the, where the human being in the midst of suffering can be accepted. But friends, it's incomplete. I also found out that Jesus is a place where I could find opportunity to develop skills. I began to teach backyard Bible clubs. I, I grew to speak from, from being a kid who the teacher couldn't hear in a classroom to speaking in front of almost a thousand kids by the time I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And I found out that in Jesus, I could have opportunity to hone skills in the midst of people who would give me, thirdly, significance. And as people began to listen to me, I started to tell, people would start to tell me, you have good things to say. You have a certain level of wisdom. We want you to speak. And so I became a youth pastor. I didn't want to become a youth pastor, but people asked me to. And the significance was nice. I became a Christian school teacher, dean of students, a pastor. I was ordained, and I became a church planter began to move into church planting ministry. Jesus became for me, somewhere along the lines, an opportunity for significance. In 2008, I was confronted by the gospel, the center of gospel-centered. In 2008, I went to the Together for the Gospel conference, and there R.C. Sproul and John Piper began to talk about a Christ who suffered. You see, I grew up thinking that where I, in my sin, am unacceptable to God, I thought that God just forgave me. No big deal. I got this, Jesus said. Don't worry about it. I got this. I can make something of your life anyway. All right? A bit of a pushover, Jesus, who is all about making my life better. That while I was unacceptable in my sin, perhaps I could be acceptable in my ministry. Does that resonate with anyone here? You know you're a sinner and you have something to confess, but you're going to work hard in ministry so that you can have something to celebrate. But these men preached the actual gospel. That when Jesus was rejected by the Father because of my sin, 
He was rejected in my place so that I could become by grace alone, through faith alone, acceptable to God in Christ alone. Sit in it. Don't build a kingdom from there. That's the center of gospel-centered. I began to understand that the point of the gospel is not that I would be accepted and therefore significant before men. The point of the gospel is that Jesus was rejected so that in him, by grace, through faith, who I am by nature and practice that is a sinner, would become acceptable to God according to the righteous sacrifice of Christ. Do you hear that? How are you acceptable to God? In Christ alone. In Christ alone. The point of the gospel is Jesus and his work in the gospel. You see, I had an immature, insufficient view that the business of Jesus in forgiving my sin was to make me accepted by men. Significant in ministry. It's not just an incomplete view. At some point, is it uncomfortable to listen to because you're like, Friend, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. Jesus and his gospel is not a means to another end. Or else he wouldn't have suffered, been rejected, died and resurrected to bring us to God. But in Mark, we've seen that Jesus has done this with people's incomplete views of himself over and over again. Even their faulty faith, he reaches out and he touches them. He calls them out of the crowd. He heals them. He brings them from one understanding, incomplete or in error, and brings them to another understanding of genuine faith. I said we'd come back to the idea of genuine faith. When we speak of genuine faith, we aren't talking about, listen, listen, such a misconception about what genuine faith is. We aren't talking about a heartfelt, sincere faith. Genuine faith isn't more of you. Genuine faith asks the question as to whether or not the ground that the faith is standing on is genuine. Is the Christ in whom you have faith the real Christ? Is the good news that he has performed and proclaimed the real good news? It's the faith of a mustard seed that holds on to that rock. And that's what's changing Peter. That's what's changing me. That's what's changing everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. You see, I don't have faith in my faith. I've never had enough. I don't have faith in my faith. I'm tired of asking if I have enough faith. It's exhausting. My question is where my faith stands genuine. Is this the real Christ? And is this his real gospel? And he says it plainly, so I don't even have to wonder very much. So what does this mean for those who follow after the Christ? Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Powerful question. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, that the genuine faith, who he actually is and what he's actually done, who's ever ashamed of the real Christ and of his words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, normally, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. They're everywhere. He, he, he leaves town, he hops in a boat, and they go with him and they meet him on the other side. But here, now that he's talking about suffering, dying, rejection, he's like, hey, crowds, crowds, <laughs> come here. And he calls the crowds to himself. And he says, if you're ashamed of what I just said to Peter, there's no ground to stand on. There is no good news of the kingdom. That's the good news of a suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Messiah. This is a necessary implication that Jesus, the suffering Savior, the Redeemer, is the foundation. You see, I can handle the content of the gospel, that Jesus has to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise, as long as he rises, right? But I get nervous about the necessary implications of following after that rabbi. It threatens all of my idols. You see, you're going to lose your life for something, Jesus says. You're going to literally expend your life for something. It's either for this world, to get this world, or you expend your life to the Christ. And you get the Christ. Jesus is telling us you're going to lose your entire life for whatever he gives you. There's a diagnostic question, I think, here. Does what you know about Jesus and his gospel imply or require you to lose your life? Or does what you know about Christ and his gospel leave you alone on a self-centered path of worldly comfort and significance? Ask the diagnostic question. And then he offers this encouragement. An encouragement to people who he just said are about to die. They're about to lose their life for his sake and for his gospel. And he offers an encouragement. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. With power. When does the kingdom of God come with power? When do we see power revealed? Friends, in the death of Jesus on the cross, Jesus is crushing sin, our great enemy. In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he is defeating, friends, death itself. There is no greater power in the world that the world has ever seen than the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The center of gospel-centered is the power moment in redemption history. 
When Jesus refers to the kingdom of God with power, he's speaking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's speaking about the central moment of gospel power. I think this verse is the final bookend of a hinge passage in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is now moving from a demonstration of his office, demonstrating according to the scriptures that he is the Messiah, Demonstrating to the crowds his power over sin, his power over death and the devil. And now he is going to execute the purpose of the Messiah. The content and the ground of the good news. His victory over sin and death in his cross and resurrection. Jesus is moving to the power of the cross. Now what's interesting is Peter is one of these people that are being spoken of in verse 1. He's going to be there. And by the grace of seeing the cross and resurrection, Peter moves from boastful, bearing a sword in the face of those who would arrest Jesus, to a bold proclaimer of the gospel in the face of persecution and death. Consider Peter's previous Christ, previous to the the display of God's power in crucifixion and resurrection. Peter's Christ was king, Peter was probably a fellow ruler, close advisor and confidant. There's no real suffering. There's victory. We call that a theology of glory, not of the cross. Peter has a power idol. But the true Christ, Peter will see him. He'll be confronted by him. He'll watch him suffer, die, and rise right in front of his eyes. Peter is one of those people, and it changes everything. Peter was too weak to stay awake and pray. He was scattered with all the others, and then he was scared into a denial of the Christ that he confessed in our passage this morning. But when Peter sees Christ suffer, rejected, die, and resurrected, the center of the good news, Peter's little Christ idol is destroyed. His faith is informed by the true gospel. And Peter himself is transformed into one who suffers many persecutions to boldly proclaim the power of the gospel. Why? Because he came to stand on the center of the gospel. My question to you is this. Do you believe who Jesus really is? is. What it means for those who follow after him. It means, according to Jesus's own words, you're going to die. I don't mean, what are you willing to give up in order to give everything? I'm actually saying, do you really believe in the real Jesus? That's the center of the question. Not, how much are you willing to die? Not, What little things are you willing to die to? But are you willing to follow after the true Christ? The bottom application is this. To look more intently into who Jesus is. Don't become bored. Don't become bored of a discovery of who Jesus really is according to his word. Let him transform you by the renewing of your mind according to his own self-revelation in his word. 
join with the church to get to know the real Jesus according to his own words, not your imagination, not your own desires about what you think he should be like, but about who he has said he is. And if you're here and you're just coming to understand and believe the gospel, I pray that you would see that Jesus' death in your place is for the just punishment of your sin. Friends, you're free. You're free. You see, it wasn't bad news when I was relieved of my idolatry of self-significance because I found the one on that day in his, the greatness of his significance and glory. I'll bask in that light all day long once you see it. I would call everyone here today, no matter where you are, to repent of whatever ways you have, have sought to perhaps, maybe not, maybe you could pass the doctrinal test, but live in the light of a lesser Jesus. Let his word, let his spirit examine your heart in confession. And then more importantly, confess Christ. Seek after him and he will be found. Repent and believe in the good news. And then this, finally, church, don't deviate from the center of gospel-centered. Don't ever become bored of the gospel. And you will watch the true Christ and his gospel inform and transform hearts and souls and households and neighbors and communities by his power and glory. Not by our significance, but by his gospel. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've said this plainly. I thank you for the lives of those who have recorded this word by the inspiration of your spirit that we have a sure testimony about Christ and his gospel. I pray that you would tutor your church in who you are. I pray that you would keep us in who you are. That we would not be afraid of repentance because isn't at the center that, that you have died You've already suffered the just punishment. There's, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's only grace. And that even if we suffer in this world, Lord, you are with us. You know us. You've redeemed us. And you will rescue us to yourself, even as you walk with us in the midst of this world's many trials. I pray that you would grow up your church in this center of gospel-centered in years and decades to come. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, and this itself is a grace. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.